How many of you are familiar with the old movie, The Princess Bride? Well, it was released in 1987, so hopefully anything we say today won't be considered a spoiler. But one of the storylines takes place with this man named Vecini. And Vecini has been secretly um, contracted to start a war between two rival countries. And so he comes up with this um, convoluted, ingenious plan that involves kidnapping a soon-to-be princess from one country and then blaming it on the other. And so Vecini thinks that his plan is so involved that no one could figure it out. He said the chances of anyone even following them or coming after them are absolutely, totally, and in every other way, inconceivable. But if you've seen the movie, you know that the man in black, the dread pirate Roberts, does figure it out. And he starts following them, and he keeps gaining and gaining on them. And every time this man in black does something that Vecini doesn't think is possible, he exclaims, inconceivable. And so about the third or fourth time that he says, inconceivable, one of his hired men, Inigo Montoya, looks at him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that brings us to where we are today in Mark's gospel. I do not think that word means what you think it means. We're going to be looking at Peter's declaration to Jesus of you are the Messiah, but then also realizing that even though we can get the answer right sometimes, we may not have any idea what it means. So let's read that together in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. It says, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were there walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Then they asked him, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is living and active. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would have the freedom to move in our hearts and minds today, to encourage, to strengthen, to convict, to heal, or just the freedom to do whatever needs to be done. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we've been in um, the Gospel of Mark, Mark has been leading us on this journey of discovering who Jesus is. And we get to see this journey, we get to view it through the eyes of the disciples. And so if we go all the way back to chapter 1, we can, uh, with Jesus, one of the first times Jesus is with his uh, newly called disciples, they start to see him as a teacher who has authority. So in, they're in the town of Capernaum. They've been there for a couple days. And when the Sabbath hits, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he starts teaching. And so with the people's response to Jesus' teaching, we can see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 22. It says, The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. So then immediately after that, while he's still in the synagogue, there's a demon-possessed man that gets up and starts causing problems. So Jesus casts out a demon right there in the synagogue. And in verse 27, we read, Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. 
So the disciples are starting to see his authority as a teacher, and maybe even that he has some new kind of teaching. So next, we watch the disciples as they see Jesus as a healer. As soon as they leave the synagogue, they head to Peter and Andrew's home. It's just down the street. And when they get there, Peter's mother-in-law is sick in bed with a high fever, and so Jesus heals her. And then word gets out to the whole town, and by that evening, the whole town is gathered to kind of see what has happened. Uh, And Mark says that the whole town gathered at their door to watch Jesus as he healed many people with various kinds of diseases and cast out many demons. So then we just see Jesus as they're uh, and his disciples as they're going through Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogues, and then they come upon a man with leprosy, a man that has this disease that makes him unclean. It's a it makes his skin fall apart. And because of this disease, he is an outcast in society. Most of the time, they were required to wear a bell around their neck. And whenever they would come across anyone, they would have to yell unclean to ward them off so that they could go around him. And so Jesus touches this unclean, untouchable man. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, this man becomes whole. This is something the disciples have not seen before. And so next we get to see Jesus do something unexpected, or at least maybe more unexpected than what he's been doing to this point. When they get back um, to Capernaum, the house that they're staying in is so packed with the crowds that there is this paralyzed man and his four friends trying to get him to Jesus. But they can't get him to Jesus because it's just too densely packed with people. And so what they do is they carry, carry this man and they start digging a hole into the roof. And they drop him into the roof in front of Jesus. Now, the disciples have been with Jesus for a little bit. They've, been, they've seen him do a lot of healings. So they're probably thinking they know what's going to happen next because they've seen how, how he works. And so they're kind of crowding in, getting together, trying to get a good view of Jesus as he's going to heal this man who can't walk. And so then Jesus looks to the man and says, Child, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, What? What did he say? He said his sins are forgiven. Hey, Peter, can he do that? Can he say that? I don't know. Why are you asking me? And so some of the religious leaders that were there, they were thinking the same thing. So Jesus knows what's in their hearts. And so he says, why are you questioning this? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat, walk, and go? And so in verse 12 of chapter 2, Jesus says, The man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. So Jesus wanted to prove to them that he had the authority on earth to forgive sin, and so he healed him. But Jesus is always doing something more besides just a miracle that's happening. So Mark is really driving home this idea that Jesus has authority. Not the, I'm going to lord it over you kind of authority that people in a position of power have, but the true authority that comes from God. So Mark takes this idea of authority even a step further when we catch up with the disciples at the end of chapter 4. After a long day of teaching, Jesus is tired, and so he and the disciples get into a boat so that they can get to the other side of the lake. Jesus is tired, so he goes to the back of the boat, and it says he's sleeping with his head on a cushion. But sometime during the crossing, this big storm comes up. And the waves are so high, they're lapping over the side of the boat that the boat's starting to fill with water. And the disciples are afraid. And so then they go wake up Jesus and say, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? 
And it's interesting, at this point they still say teacher, because that's what they see him as, just a teacher. So Jesus gets up, rebukes the, rebukes the wind, says to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stops, and there's a great calm on the lake. Then Jesus asked the disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? In chapter 4, verse 41, it says the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. So they were afraid of the storm. They were afraid of drowning. And it must have been a pretty big storm because several of these guys have lived most of their life on a boat. They're fishermen in the family fishing business. And so just being afraid of the storm and drowning... But then Jesus does something so outside the realm of possibility by calming the storm by just his words, by just speaking to it, that now they're even more afraid than they were before. They're starting to sense that there is something more to Jesus. There's something more with him. And so at the end of chapter 4, the disciples are left with, who is this man? Then we watch the disciples and they see a woman who is healed just by touching Jesus' robe. Then Peter, James, and John go off with Jesus, and they see a 12-year-old girl raised from the dead. We see the disciples as they participate with their five loaves of bread and their two fish in the feeding of the 5,000. Later that night, the disciples are in a boat struggling to cross to the lake, and Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Jesus gets into the boat and again calms the wind. And all throughout this, Jesus is teaching the parables to the crowd, and then when he's back alone with his disciples, he's explaining what the parables mean. The disciples see Jesus cast a demon out of a Gentile woman without even having to be anywhere near her. She cast her out of her daughter by just saying, your faith has made her well. The demon is gone. Just go home. He didn't even have to be anywhere near the daughter to cast the demon out. Jesus heals a deaf man who also has a speech impediment so that he can hear perfectly and speak plainly. And then we get to the feeding of the 4,000 where it seems like the disciples have not learned a thing yet. A large crowd has been following Jesus for about three days, and all the people have run out of food. And Jesus says we can't send them home because they won't make it there without any food. They're going to faint along the way, and they won't get there. The disciples say, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? So Jesus does another miraculous feeding, this time with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. We see the disciples then again in a boat. This time they're arguing with each other because they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus is frustrated with them and says, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? So then Jesus reminds them of when he fed the 5,000 and when he fed the 4,000 and then all of the leftover baskets of food and then asks them again, Don't you understand yet? And obviously they don't. So then they get off the boat Jesus sees a blind man, he touches him, and the man can see a little bit. He can't see clearly. So Jesus touches him again, and then the man can see clearly. And that brings us to Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. This whole first part of Mark's gospel has been leading up to this moment. If we look at the structure of Mark's gospel, it can be divided into two sections. In the first section, which we've been into up to this point, you can see numerous miracle stories. Most of the action takes place largely in Galilee, and there are frequent references to Jesus' teaching, but is usually directed towards the crowds and mostly concerned with the coming of God's kingdom. But from Mark 8.31 on, there's a shift in Jesus' focus. 
the action moves largely out of Galilee into either Gentile areas or to hostile Judea. Not many miracles are recorded, and though the crowds still gather around him, Jesus seems more focused on trying to spend time teaching his disciples. Jesus very plainly tells them exactly what's going to happen to him. He wants them to understand that the path laid out for him is one of humility, one of being a servant, and ultimately one of suffering. And because this is the path laid out for him, this is going to be the path for anybody that follows him. From this point on, Jesus is pointing to the cross. Now, in between these two sections is the confession from Peter. This is the turning point, the kind of transition between the first and the second section. This, you are the Messiah. After everything leading up to this, after Jesus constantly asking them, don't you understand? Can't you see? Are your hearts still hard? Peter finally gets something right. He gets the right answer. His eyes are finally opened, and he says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus immediately tells them, don't tell anyone about me. So I don't know if Peter was frustrated at that. It's like I've been going, I I finally got something right, and then... I can't tell anyone. Now, this idea of not telling anyone happens several times throughout Mark's gospel. Mark tells us one of the reasons for this, um, way back in chapter 1, back with the man that Jesus healed of leprosy. Now, after he healed the man, Jesus sent him away with a stern warning. He said, don't tell anyone about this. Now, instead, the man was supposed to go to the priest and let the priest examine him to see that he had been healed. He could offer the required sacrifice, and then he would be allowed back into community, back into fellowship, and this was to be a witness to the people that he had been healed. But instead, we read in uh, chapter 1, verse 45, what the man did. It says, but the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. So once people found out that Jesus could do miracles, the crowds just kept coming. Jesus wanted to go into the towns and preach the good news of God's kingdom, but it just became increasingly more difficult. He had to stay on the outskirts and in the deserted places, but the crowds still found him. He didn't want to be known just as a miracle worker, but because of his compassion, he didn't turn the crowds away. He healed the sick, he cast out demons, and he figured out a way to teach in the middle of all this that was happening. There were so many times that Jesus had to alter his plans because of the crowds. If you look at the feeding of the 5,000, that actually begins with Jesus saying to his disciples, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest. There were so many people coming and going, just saw the crowds everywhere that they didn't have time to eat. So Jesus wanted them to go off, spend some time, and eat together. But if we look at chapter 6, starting in verse 32, it says, so they, left in, so they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families was supposed to be a time of Jesus alone with his disciples. Now, another reason for this, um, don't tell anyone about me, um, we can see 
this idea of the, uh, is more of a not yet. And we can see this idea of a not yet in the, the first question that Jesus asked today, in the who do people say that I am? In uh, chapter 8, verse 28, he says, Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Now, it's telling that all of these answers, all these people thought that Jesus was someone, someone, some man specifically of God who was raised from the dead. And Jesus is, but just not yet. When we get to the resurrection and to the Great Commission, then it's go into all the world and tell everyone, but we're not there yet. At this point, they don't have a clear understanding of who Jesus really is. They will eventually, but not yet. Their eyes have been opened some, but they don't yet see clearly. And we know this because later on the night when Jesus is arrested, all the disciples flee, and we see Peter calling down curses on himself, swearing at a servant girl that he never knew who Jesus was. And later, we know that they don't see clearly until after the resurrection, when they're even at Pentecost, when they get filled with the Holy Spirit. But for now, we're with the disciples in this not yet, with Peter in his confession. You are the Messiah. Now again, Peter got the answer right. He just didn't know what it fully meant. He didn't know what it meant for Jesus, and he didn't know what it meant for himself as one of Jesus' followers. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word that means the anointed one. And then when the anointed one is translated into Greek, that's where we get the word Christ. So the Messiah or the Christ is the anointed one. And this idea of anointing in the Old Testament, they would set someone apart for a position or a, um, a task they had to perform, usually a king or a priest or a prophet, they would put oil on them. That's what it means to anoint. And they would set them apart for this, this work that God has for them. And so Jesus is God's anointed one. He wasn't anointed by man. He was anointed by God for this specific task. And so the anointed one, this Messiah, is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament as, God's prom- as the one God promised he would send to deliver and save his people. The Messiah would be the one to overcome God's enemies and establish a new kingdom. Now, part of the problem that the people had was they thought, the, thought of the Messiah only in terms of earthly or a political, uh, political structure. They were looking for this prophet king to lead Israel out from under Roman occupation and set up a new kingdom where they would be the ones who would be the rulers. What they overlooked in the Old Testament promises was the Messiah's spiritual role. They didn't understand that the Messiah's kingdom would be spiritual and not political. They couldn't see that he was coming to deliver and save just one nation, just their nation, but he would bring ultimate delivery for all the nations from sin and from death. And we can see um, an earthly view of the the Messiah in John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000. So after, they, after Jesus feeds everyone and the disciples go around and pick up all the leftover food and all the, gather all the baskets, then we see the people's reaction in John chapter 6, verse 14. It says, When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we've been expecting, which he was. But when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away to the hillside by himself. Jesus saw very clearly the dangers of not having an accurate view of the Messiah. That's why immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus tells the disciples about his death. 
Before they start telling anyone who he is, they have to fully understand what it means that he's the Messiah. So he starts focusing on the disciples with the tone of, well, you are right, I am the Messiah, but it's not going to look anything like you think it will. Now, one of the most fascinating people to me in the middle of all this is John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist, his mission, his purpose was to be the messenger that would go before the Messiah, and his role was to prepare the way for the Lord's coming. So John, uh, John's mother Elizabeth and Mary's, or Jesus' mother Mary are related. And so when Mary is newly pregnant with Jesus, she goes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John. And when John, inside her womb, hears Mary's voice, he starts leaping for joy because he knows he's in the presence of the Messiah. And John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus in the river and saw the Holy Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and resting on Jesus. He was the one who heard God's voice from heaven say, This is my son, whom I dearly love, whom I'm well pleased. When John saw Jesus on the other side, he pointed him out to his disciples. He said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John knows exactly who Jesus is. But it's not long after this, John gets put in prison. And when he's sitting in, in prison, some of his disciples come to him and tell him everything that Jesus is doing. And John's response after hearing that is to send these two disciples back to Jesus and say, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? In Luke chapter 7, verse 22, we see Jesus' response. He said, Then he told John's disciples, Go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. So in essence, he's telling John, you know, I'm not getting you out of prison. This is not going the way you think it's going to go. But God will bless you if you don't fall away on account of me. So Jesus the Messiah wasn't doing what John expected him to do. It didn't look anything like he thought it would. And so when John was sitting in prison, his faith was shaken so much, he was asking Jesus if he really was the Messiah. They were all looking for a conquering king, but instead Jesus came as a suffering servant. Listen to what Isaiah the prophet wrote about him in Isaiah chapter 53. That he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow on our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. 
but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear their sins. Ben and the band, you guys can come on back up. So why do we miss it? Why do we miss who Jesus really is? Why do we sometimes have a different picture in our heads? And one of the reasons is that I think our, sin, our view of sin is just too small. We don't really understand or realize what sin really costs. We can dismiss it in ourselves. We can make excuses for it. We can try and cover it up. We justify it. But if we really knew what the price for sin was, there's no way we would take it so flippantly. So we all live in a world that is broken by sin. This is the only world that we've known, but it wasn't meant to be this way. Sin made us all spiritually dead and separated us from God the Father. And there is no way for us to pay the price on our own to make that right. And because our view of sin is too small, that can lead to a view of Jesus being too small. The price he paid isn't just that he had to die on the cross. It's that God himself gave up everything that he was. He became like us. And in becoming like us, he became sin for our sake. Though he was sinless, his identification with sin was for the whole world, past, present, and future. And that allows us to be made right with God. So Jesus isn't about making us better or more comfortable Jesus brought us out of death and back to life when he made a way for us back to the Father. It's not about making things better temporarily. Jesus is about setting things right for all eternity. So what do we do when life with Jesus the Messiah doesn't look like we thought it would? What do we do when something comes along and shakes our foundation to the core? And we just say to Jesus, This is not how I thought it would be. We give ourselves permission just to walk away, to give up, say, I tried Jesus and he didn't work. Do we find something else to put our faith in, something that we say, well, this works better for me? Or do we figure out a way how to lean into Jesus even more, how to lean more on him, lean into him harder and say, I don't know what's going on. I can't see clearly But if I believe you are who you say you are when things are going right, then I have to believe that you are who you say you are even when things look very different than I thought they'd be. Jesus, if you are enough in the light when I can see clearly, then you have to be enough in the dark when things are cloudy and I don't understand. The Apostle Paul tells us that while we are in this world, we will only see an incomplete picture. It's like a dark reflection because we are looking through a veil of sin. But God stepped through this veil so that we might have a clearer picture of him. And that picture is Jesus the Messiah. 
He's the one who brings us back in the right relationship with the Father, not just for right now, but for all eternity. And the same question that this Jesus the Messiah asked the disciples, he asked each one of us, who do you say that I am? It is a question we have to answer. It is the question we have to answer. Everything else hinges on it. So I ask you to consider that question today, how you would answer it. Who do you say Jesus is? And even consider further, where did that answer come from? Did it come from the Jesus, the Messiah, as revealed in Scripture? Or did it come from just a piece of things we've read, something we got from the culture, some part of ourselves that we kind of put together that we feel comfortable with? Who do you say that Jesus is? We're going to move into a time of communion and prayer where we remember Jesus the Messiah. We remember that he was the one who became sin and paid the price for us to put us back into that right relationship with the Father. So when you're ready, there'll be people at the four corners of the room that have a plate with crackers and a cup with juice. You take the cracker and dip it in the juice and then you remember Jesus the Messiah. But maybe you've never answered that question of who Jesus, who do you say Jesus is? Or maybe you don't know how you would answer it today. And we have some people who would love to pray and to talk with you. Um, over here on the left, we're going to have some of our small group leaders and some of our elders. And if you're just not sure who Jesus is, if you want to find out more about him, or you're not sure how you would answer that question, they would love to pray and to talk with you. Then I'll be over here on the right as well. So let's pray as we remember Jesus together. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for us. Thank you for making a way back to the Father. Jesus, help us to hear your voice. Help us to not harden our hearts. Please make them soft. Open our eyes so that we can see you clearly. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.